Welcome to the People's Historians Podcast from the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. In light of the popularity of our online mini-classes centered around teaching the Black freedom struggle, we've converted our online sessions to a podcast with the hopes of amplifying the importance of teaching for Black lives in the classroom and beyond. On May 22nd, our host, Sierra Kaler-Jones, an education and new fellow with Teaching for Change through Communities for Just Schools Fund, interviews historian Robin D.G. Kelly to demystify the taboos and stereotypes about communism in the decades leading up to the modern civil rights movement. Sierra starts by introducing Kelly. I am very honored uh, and feel very blessed to be able to be in conversation with and introduce Dr. Robin Kelly. He is a distinguished professor and Gary V. Nash Endowed Chair in U.S. History at UCLA. His books include Freedom Dreams, The Black Radical Imagination, and Hammer and Ho, Alabama Communists During the Great Depression, which doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of his scholarship. And so as we launch into the conversation, as I think back to my experience in my K-12 schooling, I didn't learn anything about how Black people organized before the modern civil rights movement. The civil rights movement wasn't even referenced as organizing when I learned it in school, but rather was described as a result of a few courageous leaders, something that we've been exploring over these past couple of weeks together. And it actually wasn't until I was in graduate school that I was introduced to the rich history of black radical tradition. And so we don't learn much at all about the Communist Party in US history. And when we do, McCarthyism ensures that it is not positive. And so Dr. Kelly, for our conversation today on the black left in the 30s through 50s, I would love to hear your thoughts on the major miseducation that happens around the Communist Party and black activism and why it's so important to push back towards a different understanding. Right. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm so excited and honored, uh, partly because you know my work better than me. <laughs> I haven't read these books in a long time. Um, but, um, and, and also just the whole Howard Zinn Educational Project is one of the most important um, uh, interventions that we need right now, like right now. Uh, so I really ap appreciate this conversation. So let me, let me just begin with just the, the most obvious thing is that just the sheer silence on the history of the left period, um, let alone the silence on the history of organized labor, you know, black workers uh, struggles um, in the civil rights movement has been pretty consistent, you know, I mean, even to this day. But let's, let me begin with sort of three basic myths about the Communist Party, why we don't know much about it. One myth is that all the communists were white, all 25 of them, right? You know, they're all white. And that there, this, and second myth is that there were no communists in the South. Um, that's something that, you know, there was a the communist threat. Communism became just an epithet to attack the civil rights movement generally, um, as opposed to actual people who were members of the communist party and its uh, allies. Um, a third is that, you know, and I'm, if you watch MSNBC all the time, you'll believe this, that <laughs> communists were basically the espionage wing of the Soviet Union. Um, they don't really exist as activists committed to social justice. Um, and again, you know, this, the folks in this room uh, clearly have a different take, but this is the common, the common uh, lore. Um, one thing I should add too about that is that even though the, the press, historians, the FBI, and McCarthyism have, have all kind of conspired to erase the legacy of the left, I mean left broadly speaking, um, we have to put some of the onus on black leadership, black mainstream leadership. Uh, people in the NAACP like Walter White and Roy Wilkins spent a lot of time um, red baiting and attacking people like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, and I'm not saying that it was always that case, you know, that was always the case. I mean, Walter White of the NAACP had a working relationship with the boys, even though they didn't like each other for many years. But then the pressure of McCarthyism uh, compelled a lot of middle-class black leadership to basically break ties. Um, and then there's another story, which is the story of the anti-Stalinist left, which includes African-Americans like uh, A. Philip Randolph, for example, who of course is a very important 
labor leader, but comes out of the Socialist Party and um, had a lot of opposition, not initially, uh, but later to the Communist Party. And so there are those sort of um, internal uh, conflicts. One last thing I want to add to this issue is something we don't talk much about, and that is that um, the anti-communist folklore, uh, which was really important for generating fears of communism, uh, was that communism was associated more with interracial sex than socialism. I mean, that was the bug. That was a bugaboo. I mean, you know, the the idea that somehow communism, you know, the, the mythology around communism is that, you know, white women will be available to black men under the communist system, right? That that upset white people more than the threat of socialism. In fact, much of the anti-communist rhetoric, uh, which silenced the Communist Party, um, didn't talk about socialism as a challenge to free enterprise. Uh, that's not their thing. There were conservative intellectuals who talked about that, but for the most part, it was white folks terrified of the threat of black men having sexual access to white women, white women being treated as property. So that's what's interesting about the American anti-communist sort of trajectory in, in, in culture. Mm, so many good points in that. And I'm just reflecting on, as you, as you said, anti-communist folklore and that how that continues to come up and it appears in so many history textbooks. Mm -hmm. And thinking about my personal experience and just remembering uh, equating uh, communism with, with red, right? It was always red, red scare. Another point that you brought up that I found to be really interesting uh, from reading your work is around the relationship between uh, the Black Communist Party in Alabama and the NAACP, specifically around uh, the Scottsboro case and how that strained a lot of their relationship as they tried to bring it to an international stage. Sure. No, that's a, an excellent question. I, I should begin by saying one of the uh, bits of information or statistics I discovered that shocked me was um, in 19, I think it was 1931, um, the Communist Party, Communist Party membership in Alabama and Birmingham uh, was close to 500. The NAACP had six members six dues-paying members. In other words, the, the Communist Party just dwarfed the NAACP at the local level. Um, but that said, um, the Scottsboro case was probably the beginning of a whole series of competitions between uh, the Communist Party's um, uh, role in struggling against criminal justice. And, and I want to say a couple things about that. One of the focus or the folk I should say, of the Communist Party was uh, racist criminal justice system, uh, incarceration, which wasn't considered mass incarceration, but the incarceration of, of Black people being thrown in jail for things they didn't do. And then also um, police brutality. And so the International Labor Defense was an organization formed by the Communist Party in the early 20s to really... Uh, defend what they called class war prisoners. Class war prisoners um, were those who they felt were being railroaded into prison, being attacked by the police, being surveilled by the FBI um, because they were fighting for social justice, for labor rights. Uh, it turns out that with Scottsboro, and even before Scottsboro, uh, when the party got involved and the ILD got involved, International Labor Defense, in anti-lynching campaigns, that's when the, the definition of class war prisoner expanded to include lynch victims. Um, the, the party wasn't the first to fight lynching. I mean, black people were fighting them, them all the time. But it's really fascinating to see how the entry of the International Labor Defense forced the NAACP to take on cases that they would not have taken on. Um, they, were, they were reluctant to, to, to jump into Scottsboro at first. They were reluctant to jump into other cases involving a, a gentleman named Willie Peterson who ended up um, was being falsely accused of rape in Birmingham. Uh, later, they got involved in, in cases in the post-war period, which you could talk about, like Rosalie Ingram, uh, Willie McGee, these cases. The NAACP was forced and compelled to get involved because um, the Black left had jumped in. And that 
produced a great deal of tension between the organizations. And um, some of the most heroic and important figures in, in the NAACP had taken the position, people like Charles Hamilton Houston, that we need to eliminate the communists. The communists are a problem. Uh, by the late 1930s, what you begin seeing is communist party members, black communists, joining the NAACP in large numbers. And at the local level, really kind of redirecting uh, its, um, its work. And I'm not saying it's the Communist Party's you know, um, uh, initiative that did this, but the NAACP becomes a mass organization in the 1940s at the time when it, its doors are opening up to people who they normally saw as a threat. And those same communists end up being thrown out of the NAACP in, in the post-war period just before the NAACP gets declared a communist organization by Southern segregationists, and they end up being outlawed in the South. I mean, it's an interesting thing. Um, and I hope we could talk about uh, criminal justice at some point, because I just want to just set this up by saying that our image of the civil rights movement often pivots around the struggle for uh, uh, access to public accommodations, desegregating public accommodations, uh, access to education, um, to the right to vote. And this is all true. And the Communist Party and its organizations supported these things, but they put a lot of emphasis on police violence and criminal justice. That was probably more important than anything uh, in the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s. Uh, and there's some really good stories about that I could tell, but I'll I'll save that. I love that because we're definitely going to talk about it. That's one of the, the questions that I do have and excited to tie all of, all of history together. Uh, but I want to go back just a little bit and thinking about uh, in a lecture that you gave for WGBH Forum Network on your book, Freedom Dreams. You said, we often don't talk, we often talk about why movements fail, but not so much about what they hope to achieve. And so the Communist Party hadn't ventured south before 1929. And in Hammer and Ho, you explore the Alabama Communist Party. And so I'd really love for you to share more about the Alabama Communist Party's demands at the time and what their campaigns were, because I'm excited sure. to see how that leads us to present day conversation. That's such a great question. I mean, it's also important to acknowledge that the Communist Party uh, last year celebrated its 100th birthday. So 100 years, what I'm saying here is that um, demands, agendas change over time. And the Communist Party in Alabama has a history that begins, as you point out, in 1930 and lasted even beyond my book. I mean, it was almost dead by 1950, but it continued to uh, exist. So if we take the first part, the early agenda or the early demands centered around things like fighting um, for money and resources for the unemployed. You know, this is before the New Deal. There was no New Deal in the 1930s. Uh, there were like local organizations giving relief. So they fought for more state and federal relief funds. They fought for jobs for the unemployed. They fought to end evictions of people being thrown out of their homes because they couldn't pay the rent. They fought to, for unions to have the right to organize. Um, they fought for provisions for sharecroppers because in those days, when you're a sharecropper, um, during the winter, you don't get provisions from the landlord. You have to figure out a way to survive. And people were starving. And of course, there's a story, SNCC has a story like this, where people are trying to get provisions for people during the winter. And this is an ongoing thing. So, so they organized for that. They organized for equal wages for cotton pickers, irrespective of gender or, or age. Um, they fought against a racist criminal justice system. Then by the 30s and late 30s and 40s, their demands changed, or I should say expanded. They expanded to things like, you know, they had organizations like the, the Right to Vote Club um, in Alabama, which the communists took over. They had the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, which a lot of Communist Party members participated in organizing. Uh, the Southern Negro Youth Congress was formed in, established its headquarters in Birmingham in 1939, and the League of Young Southerners, a group of Southern white youth, um, got together. And what did they fight for? They fought to build a stronger industrial union movement. Uh, they fought 
uh, racism in the armed forces and uh, in uh, federal jobs. Uh, they launched a voter registration campaign. They investigated police brutality cases in civil liberties violations and protested those. Uh, they waged a campaign to end segregation on buses. This is like the 1940s. Uh, and in 1944, uh, Lewis Burnham, one of the leaders of the Communist Party and leaders of the Southern Negro Youth Congress, formed a, a black political party, <laughs> which we don't even talk about, under the slogan of nonviolence and non-cooperation. This is 1944. Um, so, and, and of course, the Southern Negro Youth Congress was the forerunner of SNCC, and we could talk about that. So, so to kind of sum up, in addition to fighting for like basic things, fair wages, decent and desegregated housing, education, fair and, ed and desegregated education, healthcare, full racial equality, equal rights for women, they also called for, on the global scale, an end to colonialism, which they saw as a crime against humanity, um, the end of US imperialist wars, in this particular instance, Korea, um, they opposed the Cold War and opposed nuclear war. So these, this is sort of the, the evolution of the, their demands. And you could see how that, those set of demands, which centered around black working class life and then the masses of black people, end up you know, being foundational to the demands of the civil rights, when you think of the civil rights movement. Um, but to be fair, if you look at those demands, put them on a list, you can find them in the, not the 1960s, but the 1860s. These are the fundamental demands going back to the end of, of slavery and the beginning of Reconstruction. Um, the right to dignity, the right to, to, to livelihood, um, the right to equality and fairness, to equity and safety. You know, So in some ways, the Communist Party wasn't this sort of weird stretch. And what's ironic is how little they actually spoke about socialism. Wow, I appreciate so much how you lay out this timeline and then also within the framework of talking about these demands that we are still in essence fighting for. And so I would love to uh, continue to expand upon this timeline that you were laying out for us in talking about the period after 1935 when the Alabama Communist Party came above ground. Yeah, yeah. B by the way, I just had one little thing. Um, I didn't learn about this stuff in college except in the library and in our study groups. You know, I come out of a, a, of a background where a lot of people I know who are participating, some of whom I know, come out of a very similar background, being involved in a left-wing organization where study groups, self-study was, was our introduction to these things, not the classroom. And I'm not, I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old, you know. <laughs> so, you know, but in the 1980s, that's how we figured some of this stuff out. Now, the, I, I love this question you asked because it, it makes me think that I actually had it wrong in my book. I, um, and what I mean by that is that if you look at the history of the Communist Party in the national level, it is true that the early period was considered the underground period and the popular front when the Communist Party was sort of nudged or directed by the Communist International, which was the body um, in Moscow made up of leaders of Communist parties around the, the globe, when they were directed to sort of build a popular front against fascism and partly to defend the Soviet Union. Um, in Alabama, it was the opposite. The party was actually overground when it was underground. It was much more visible in the early 30s. In fact, this is when they were having shootouts with police in rural Alabama. This is when they were like out protesting in front of City Hall under the banner of the Communist Party. And boy, if I could just get some of the police film clips of those protests from 1932 would be amazing. But what happened in 1935, when the party was directed to embrace a popular front against fascism, they had to turn to the local liberal. They had to, the idea was turn to Southern liberals, but Southern liberals are not like 
red curious. <laughs> they're, not, they're not necessarily like friendly to communism in a way that say New York liberals or Chicago liberals might be. For them, these were liberals who were committed to Jim Crow, who insistently believed that black people were second-class citizens. And what it required was um, communists to actually suppress their own agenda to play down that agenda. And actually, one could argue, and I argue this in my book, kind of abandon the black and the white working classes in the South, in Alabama, in favor of trying to make friends with people who don't like them in the first place. Um, and so on the one hand, you see these things happen, like uh, all these wildcat strikes take place among relief workers, relief workers many of whom are black women working for the, uh, the WPA, for the Works Progress Administration, working for slave wages. And they're writing letters to Roosevelt and saying, you know, they're treating us like slaves and they have these strikes. And the Communist Party at first is helping them to organize these strikes. Uh, but the labor movement in Alabama is saying, these strikes are illegal. These strikes um, are strikes against the government. We, as, we signed an agreement with the government that we're not gonna allow relief workers to strike. We're just gonna let you basically hang. Um, the Communist Party in its attempts at that time to maintain the alliance or build a stronger alliance with mainstream labor leaders and liberals actually began to, to step back and not support the strikes. So in some ways it was a loss. On the other hand, there's always on the other hand, you know, um, the popular front also opened up space for a different kind of radical movement. And that is, you begin to see, I mentioned the Southern Negro Youth Congress and the League of Young Southerners, a new group of young, black, and some white, but mostly black uh, intellectuals and activists who converge in Birmingham and adopt a really, real militant uh, program that um, did not abandon the working class, in fact, supported CIO organizing, went to the rural areas and held schools um, among, I mean, what we think of as freedom schools today, or at least that emerged, you know, in the early 1960s, you see freedom schools like that formed by the SNYC in the 19, late 1930s and early 40s. Um, so it's out of that um, anti-racist militancy that emerges during the Popular Front in Alabama that you get groups like the Southern Conference for Human Welfare. Some of you may be familiar with that organization. The Southern Conference for Human Welfare ends up becoming the Southern Conference Educational Fund, uh, which is led by none other than Ann Braden and Carl Braden, you know, who were in Birmingham for a while and end up you know, in Tennessee, um, in, in uh, Kentucky. So they, they, they were amazing militant organizers who came out of that space of, of recognizing that you cannot build an alliance with Southern liberals who don't like you. But what you can do is build a movement that's deeply anti-racist and fight on that score and, and bring in anyone who wants to be part of that uh, without having to uh, insist that they're members of the Communist Party. So there's a positive element that, that came with it, but then the negative one was that some of the working class self-organization ended up collapsing as their best organizers went into organizations like the CIO. Wow, that is, that is such powerful history. And I, I'm, I'm looking at my next question and I'm so excited to ask this one because I think a lot about one of the pieces of history that often gets pushed to the side is, is what you talk about when you talk about infrapolitics and oppositional culture. And so in Hammer and Ho, you state, I love quotes, so I keep pulling from your quotes, but you state, black communists were not blank sheets when they entered the movement. Instead, they were born and reared in communities with a rich culture of opposition, a culture that enveloped and transformed the party into a movement more reflective of the African-American radical traditions than anything else. And so in your work, you talk about the individualized resistance and politics that black working class use as opposition to oppression, from singing to theft, to dressing up and dancing on the weekends, to black members of the Communist Party bombarding social workers with postcards to push them to give workers relief. And so I would love if you would share some of those stories of, of oppositional resistance. Absolutely. 
one of the things that, that surprised me, um, and I would not, and I have to give credit, I would not have seen it had it not been for two teachers of mine. Um, one was Cedric Robinson, who passed away a few years ago, who really, you know, his imprint is all over my work. He was the one who kept saying to me, you know, if you're trying to figure out how the communists mobilized Black people, you're asking the wrong questions. Real question is, what did Black people bring to a movement? What is the radical tradition? What did they, in other words, they didn't need Europe. They didn't need Marx. They didn't need any of that stuff to be able to bring it. This doesn't mean it didn't matter. It mattered, but that's not what they brought. And then George Lipsitz, my other teacher, uh, told me, look, he wrote a book about Ivory Perry, which is a wonderful book called the Culture, Ivory Perry and the Culture of Opposition, A Life in the Struggle, basically. A beautiful book which talks about a culture of opposition. That is to say that out of his own experiences, he figured out you know, what hurt him and his people, what were the barriers, and what were the strategies that actually worked so that they can come back the next day and fight. So to go back to Alabama, um, these were very organized people. If anyone says you're organizing, you're unorganized, it's such a myth. These were some of the most organized people on the planet. Why? They were organized in the churches. They were organized in the lodges. They were organized in mutual benefit associations, right? They were organized in gospel quartet circuits. You know, there's so many communists came out of gospel quartets. It's, it's amazing. It's like those Negroes could sing and organize, you know? So these were the, the organizations that already pre-existed and they tapped into those. But they're not just organizations, they're cultures. Cultures in which the Bible carries way more weight to explain injustice and how to, result, how to change that. What is a just world? You know, they found that in the Bible. They found it um, in, in the way they talked about the bottom rail shall sort of rise to the top. Um, they also found in a, a kind of oral culture, oral tradition, they carried with them a history, uh, you know, the history of reconstruction. You know, they didn't have to read the boys. They didn't have to read Benjamin Brawley. They didn't have to read any of that stuff to know from the people who they grew up with, their grandparents, who said, I remember when we had the vote. I remember when we actually um, pulled out our guns and protected ourselves from the Klan. I remember when we actually exercised democracy and when it was taken away. That memory is very powerful because it allowed them to see an organization like the Communist Party or its, its allies as automatic allies. You know, it allowed them to see themselves as part of a larger movement. And so let me, let me tell you one story and then give you some examples. One, my favorite story, which I talk about in the, uh, the new preface to the book, uh, involves this man named Lemon Johnson. Lemon Johnson since passed away. He lived in Hope Hall, Alabama, Lowndes County. And uh, I went to go interview him. He was involved in a cotton picker strike in 1935. And I walk into his house, there's a hole in the roof. He's got a picture of Jesus, white Jesus on his wall and a picture of Martin Luther King on his wall. Uh, he's got a bed, a chair, a, a, a table. And I have to sit on the bed. So I asked him, well, you know, so how, how did you all like win, win the strike? How, like, how did you organize? And he opens his drawer up and he pulls out a copy of Lenin's What Is To Be Done. And he puts it on the bed, boom. And then he pulls out a box of shotgun shells and he puts it next to the copy of Lenin. And he says, theory and practice, theory and practice. And then he went on to tell me that they were not afraid because they knew that if the landlords would come out and start trying to lynch Negroes, they not only had their guns, the men and women, to protect themselves, but they knew if things got really bad, that Stalin would send ships across the Atlantic through Mobile and send the Red Army to protect them. Now that we think of, and he, he said it'd be seven ships 
and each ship would have like, you know, contingents of seven men. And, you know, I mean, all that's like, that's the culture. That's the culture. He didn't believe that, but it's the stories that carried the weight. What kind of strategies emerge? So the stories were very powerful of militancy, but when it came to actual grassroots organizing on the ground, this was an organization that knew they could die. They knew they had to protect themselves and defend themselves. So in some cases, they did actually, um, one particular case, many cases actually, they, they engaged in armed self-defense. But in most cases, they would do things under, under sort of on the sly. Uh, when people's electricity, for example, would go out, they'd come out with jumper cables and connect it to the city uh, streetlights, for example, to give them electricity. When their water would be turned off for uh, lack of payment, they would come in and turn the water on uh, with tools. Uh, when there were evictions um, or potential evictions, they would send, they would either approach a landlord with a committee and say, look, if you evict this family, I can't tell you what's going to happen to your house because people do need firewood, you know. So my suggestion to you is that maybe you might want to keep them in the house to protect it and maybe pay them a dollar a month for the work of taking care of your house. It's up to you. <laughs> you find out what's going to happen. Or sending penny postcards to um, social workers who would take away relief from people because the whole system of welfare was always based on policing. Um, these were incredible victories. Um, and also, you know, the way they would distribute information, you know, going to work, uh, they would have leaflets and a worker would open up his lunchbox, let the leaflets out and then they'd fly and blow everywhere and say, well, I don't know where those come from, you know? Or uh, people who work in laundry, domestic servants, who would go into houses and sometimes use their, uh, their, their identity as a, as a laundress, right? Um, as a laundry worker to, to smuggle in mimeographed uh, sheets to communists, white communists, you know? And that sort of thing. So all this was really underground. In other words, they did not necessarily need to uh, put up a front of militancy to be militant because they wanted to be most effective. And the trickster was part of the trope uh, of in African-American culture that they, they kind of adopted. It's not always the case, but those are just some of the ways in which they brought the culture uh, to the movement. I love those stories. My, my personal favorite is the story of the mimeographs and the black women bringing them into, when doing laundry, bringing them into the homes. And so there are a number of things that you mentioned that I know stick with me and I'm, I'm watching the chat as, as folks are in conversation, but just the idea of memory that we are seeing ourselves as part of a larger movement. The second piece about theory into practice. So imagining into organizing and fighting for a more just world that's, that's rooted in justice, joy, and liberation. Uh, and also the idea that you talk about of radical imagination and using imagining as a collective practice for transformation. And so uh, one of the things that I really appreciated and, and really uh, enjoyed about this entire series of people's historians online is the, is the emphasis and the focus on the black women, the powerful black women who have been at the helm of of our, our nation. And so in thinking about black women for this next question, there are so many beautiful narratives about the black women of the black left. And so I would love to invite Dr. Kelly to share more about these women. So women like Estelle Milner, who was a school teacher, Claudia Jones and Mildred McAdory, who uh, has a connection to a common theme that we've been talking about throughout the series. And that would be Mrs. Rosa Park. So Dr. Kelly, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Okay, there we go. Unmute. Okay, so um, no, it's a really great question. And what I was saying before was that I, one of one of the things I'm disappointed about was you know I wrote this book 30 years ago and wish I had had more and done more research on these extraordinary Black women in the party, both within the Communist Party uh, in Alabama, but also extending beyond that. Um, you mentioned Estelle Milner. She was someone who I actually was inspired to do a little bit more research on. And she's a woman born in the turn of the century who uh, became a school teacher, 
But I believe that because of her activism, she ended up losing her job because by 1940, she ends up being a domestic worker living in Birmingham. But this is one militant, courageous uh, person who uh, was an organizer for the Sharecroppers Union, grew up in Camp Hill in Tallapoosa County, uh, had her skull fractured when she was being attacked by, by mobs because of her organizing work and never wavered, continued to do that work. Uh, I mentioned in the book, some women like, you know, Helen Long's whose story of being beaten, she's a domestic worker, an organizer for the Communist Party, uh, whose story about being uh, beaten um, in, Fair, in a Fairfield uh, jail mirrors that of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, you mentioned some other women like Claudia Jones, a uh, Trinidadian immigrant who moves to New York, uh, who ends up being really the highest ranking black woman in the Communist Party and probably its most important theoretician who wrote a very important essay on called The Neglect of Negro Women, uh, which is a kind of critique of not just, you know, race and gender uh, and its relationship to class, but the party's own race and gender politics. Um, and she ends up, what happens to her, she ends up being deported and ends up in England being one of the most important organizers uh, uh, in the UK. Um, so there's lots of examples of that. Uh, one thing we're going to end up talking about at some point, I think, is the Southern Negro Youth Congress, which probably had the most dynamic group of Black women uh, leaders, uh, who people like Esther Cooper Jackson and Dorothy Burnham, and one person who we don't always talk about, uh, an, a, an amazing uh, militant named Sally Davis. Sally Davis had two daughters. Fania Davis and Angela Davis. Uh, and so Angela, of course, is, you know, one could argue, you know, it depends on who you're talking to, um, was a product of this kind of this left culture very, as, as a child, you know. And so these were women who, uh, who were no, not just extraordinary for their courage and for their willingness to stand up to power, but because the political work put them directly in touch with working class families and middle-class families. Uh, and their emphasis was on uh, improving lives of working-class people uh, at whatever the cost, you know. Um, and so to me, as a future project for, for new students, to go back and find these names, look, figure out who these people are, do deeper research to understand uh, that these Black women were not simply like the cannon fodder of the party. They were not simply running mimeograph machines, but they were also the intellectuals uh, theorizing, uh, how do you build a movement devoted to class struggle and the emancipation of all human beings, you know, uh, emancipation from gender and patriarchy, emancipation from racism in, uh, in, in Jim Crow. You know? And they thought through these things, wrote about them, lived them, and practiced them. And I appreciate that so much because I, I felt that same sentiment as I was reading more about these women. I was like, oh, I have to I have to dig in more. I have to get more history. I have to know their whole stories because as you talk about, uh, the party press didn't really talk about Black women at all. Uh, so it's fascinating to really start to dig into some of those powerful stories. And so looking at the chat box, we do have a question around if you could speak more uh, to about how the politics of the 1860s and abolitionists have a connection to leftist politics. Right. Okay, I, I got to censor myself because I could talk about that for three days straight. <laughs> um, there, there are some threads, and I hinted at those threads. Those threads are around, you know, what, what Du Bois called abolition democracy. Threads around fair wages, in the right to organize, threads that center around the right for Black um, self-determination, Black autonomy. And what that means is the right to land, um, the right to education, uh, the right to, um, not just the right to vote, but the right to representation and to make decisions about the future. The, the vision of the 1860s and 70s that, that formerly enslaved people brought to the realm of politics, I argue, um, was the first 
iteration of what we call social democracy. We always, you pick up a, a textbook, you think social democracy begins in Europe in the 1890s. No, it begins uh, at least in the United States in the 1860s and 70s, led by Black people. Uh, now that said, much of what they were trying to do besides defend themselves and build institutions like churches, um, you can't argue that it was socialist per se. What you can argue is that um, wealth accumulation was very, very important, not inequality, not at the expense of others, but trying to build a basis in wealth for black people who had been property before. That's a very radical position, but it's one that's specific to that moment. If you look at the period after 1877, you see a slight shift in black radical politics to where it's still people fighting for land, people fighting for the vote, people still having to vote through the Republican Party, but they're joining other parties like the Knights of Labor, they're joining the Greenback Labor Party, they're joining the, the readjusters with an emphasis on class, on wages, on good working conditions, on ownership and control of the means of production. And that's where you get people like Lucy Parsons, formerly a slave who ends up one of the most important anarchists uh, in the United States. You know, um, and the, the, so you have that vision. If you jump to the 1930s, it's a little different in that land is not as important. Uh, it, it's not that it's not important. It's certainly important for the sharecroppers. But now you see much more emphasis on uh, fair wages, housing, desegregation, you know, um, uh, you know, what we think of as the, the other part of social democracy, a strong uh, welfare state that could provide for people. And when I say provide for people, I don't mean like handouts. I mean libraries, schools you know, institutions, um, parks, um, good jobs, uh, protection uh, for people at work, and most importantly, protection from, for people from lynching and police and state violence, you know. So their connections, and those things, of course, go back to the 1860s and 70s, they go back to the beginnings of slave ships. Um, but, you know, the, but there's some things that are slightly different. And just one last thing about that. Um, there's, it's not to say that there wasn't talk of socialism in the 1870s and, and 80s. It was. A lot of talk about it. Um, but the talk of socialism in the 1930s takes on a different kind of resonance because now you have something you didn't have in the 1880s, and that is a successful, quote-unquote successful, um, socialist country, you know, that is a socialist revolution uh, that becomes a model for what socialism is. Not a good model, but a model nonetheless, and that shapes the discourse in some ways. I do have another question, Dr. Kelly, as you're talking about police violence and state-sanctioned violence. And so in this larger conversation, uh, would you share about the infrastructure that was laid by Black communist organizing of the 30s, 50s for civil rights organizing, the Black power movement, and contemporary social movements today around police violence, mass incarceration, and the ongoing struggle for Black liberation? And how do you consider the relationship between these periods? Right. That's a great question. I'll begin with one big statement, which is that... Um, the Communist Party and the organizations that it spawned, specifically the National Negro Congress, the Southern Negro Youth Congress, um, Sojourners for Truth and Justice, which is a Black women's organization, um, uh, and the Civil Rights Congress, all put state violence, racist state violence, and the criminal justice system at the top of the agenda. This is very, very important because, again, if we think of civil rights movement as uh, having a, 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 a prioritizing public accommodations, desegregation, I'm not saying that's always true, but that's the, the image we have. For them, state violence, police violence was most important. So, you know, and, and, and especially for working people, um, the Southern Negro Youth Congress with women in the leadership, I mentioned Dorothy Burnham, Sally Davis, Ethel Lee Goodman, Mildred McAdory, um, Augusta Strong, all these, they were protesting police killings of people like Ode uh, uh, Henderson, um, John Jackson, Timothy Hood, 
these were the folks who were the Michael Browns and Eric Garners of their days, 1940s. Um, they formed the Jefferson County Committee Against Police Brutality in 1941. They're the ones who made criminal justice the, the main priorities. Uh, and there's one story I just want to share real quickly, because um, this story goes back. It goes, we know the story through Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks is being like the premier um, organizer around questions of state violence, violence against men and women. And she did a lot of this work uh, early on. And she did this work oftentimes through the NAACP and in, in concert with the International Labor Defense. The International Labor Defense was formed precisely to do this work around um, criminal justice uh, reform, incarceration, and police violence, and lynching. So one story, 1934, the International Labor, Def Labor Defense defended in Selma, Alabama, of all places, a, a black man named Ed Johnson. And Ed Johnson was charged with raping a white, white woman. Uh, he was a, a city employee. And here's the amazing thing. This is in the midst of the Scottsboro case. The Scottsboro case changed the dynamics because what the Scottsboro case did, what the ILD did, was they changed the narrative. They went, the communist newspapers and the protests humanized the defendants, that is, they pushed against the stereotypes of black men as violent, dangerous rapists, um, and against the stereotype of white women as all being you know, pure virtuous and victims, and instead made the state the criminals and black people being accused of this violence the victims. So go back to Selma. Um, so he gets arrested. The state or the, the sheriff has to dismiss the charges because the white woman who they tried to get to accuse him recanted. She says, he didn't do anything to me. And in fact, her exact words were, I will not be like Victoria Price, but like Ruby Bates, I will tell the truth. Ruby Bates was the person who in the Scottsboro case recanted and said, you know what, this never happened. And she ends up being a hero of the Communist Party and she goes on tour with Angelo Herndon. Um, and Victoria Bates was the one, I mean, sorry, Victoria Price was the one who said, you know, we have to um, stick with it. These people need to go to the electric chair. That's not the end of the story. The story ends with the sheriff trying to hand Johnson over to a lynch mob. What happens? The ILD shows up with an armed contingent of ex-servicemen to protect them. And so what I'm saying is that part of the story of the left's intervention in police violence is not the people who died they protested, but the people who lived. And they lived because they defended them um, through armed, armed self-defense. All that stuff led to uh, William L. Patterson's historic book, Recharged Genocide, which is a book that I'm sure most people are familiar with, which was a kind of compilation since the end of World War II to 1951 of all these cases of police violence. Uh, and what's important here is that for them, Police violence, state violence, vigilante violence was a form of genocide and genocide that the state was participating in or complicit with. And so where did they go with this document? They went to the United Nations. And they went to the United Nations, um, to the Commission on Human Rights, and they did exactly what or other left organizations did. The National Negro Congress did the same thing. They submitted a petition to the United Nations saying that the, the U.S. government is actually uh, you know, violating our human rights, engaged in genocide. This was huge. You can't understand um, the, the Black Panther Party's position on police violence and state violence on a UN plebiscite for self-determination. You can't understand recharge genocide or the Dream Defenders or, you know, the Revolutionary Action Movement, all those movements that emerge putting at the center state violence, vigilante violence, Black Lives Matter comes directly out of these kinds of struggles. Because for them, the right to live, you know, not just with dignity, but just to actually live, the, the, the ending the war on Black people was the fundamental struggle which connected all the other struggles together, you know. Um, and so that's, that's sort of how I see it. And that history really needs to come out in order to understand the long, long history of, of why state violence and why someone like, the, why the murder of Emmett Till 
was way more important than Brown v. Board of Education in terms of stimulating a, a movement. Wow, those stories just, wow. And most of these stories are just, you know, we, we don't teach them in school. And just like you said at the beginning, when you would go to the library and in your study groups, like as a form of resistance of reclaiming this, this knowledge that didn't get taught in the classroom. And so as we have to end, unfortunately, uh, there's so many questions I know folks have to ask you. But as we, as we wrap up our time today and just thinking about resistance, uh, resistance against state violence, resistance against poverty, resistance against oppression, against the war on Black people, uh, one of the quotes from your book, I'll end here on a quote that really grounds me and continues to guide me that I would love to share with everyone on the call, is you say resistance is our heritage and resistance is our healing. Through collective struggle, we alter our circumstances, contain, escape, or possibly eviscerate the source of trauma, recover our bodies, reclaim and redeem our dead, and make ourselves whole. And so that's something that, that keeps me going in this, in this greater fight for justice. And so for that, I thank you so much for taking time. What a gift it is to be able to be in conversation with you and everyone on the call for your thoughts, your feedback in the chat box. We really appreciate it uh, and excited to send out more resources so that you can continue to, to follow and continue to learn more about this topic. Well, and thank so, you so much. Thank yeah. you. It's so great. And um, I can't believe I even wrote those words, but yeah, sure. they're great. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the excellent work um, that the, the Howardson Educational Project is doing and just keep it up. Whatever I can do to support you, just let me know. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. The People's Historians online mini classes continue to be hosted on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern via zenedproject.org.